Welcome to Life With Your Dog podcast. Our focus is educating dog owners, enthusiasts and dog trainers about ideas on how to train, manage, live and thrive with our dogs. To teach dogs to live in our society while our dogs teach us how to live in the now. I'm your host Panos Anagnostou. And I'm your co-host Luke Badman. Thank you for joining us and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Life With Your Dog. My name's Panos, and I'm joined with a guest today, Shara. Nice to meet Hi. you. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Not nice to meet you. Nice to have you on the show. I've known you for years. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I don't even know why here. I said Thanks. that. <laughs> Thanks for having me. You're very, very welcome. Luke couldn't join us today. He just came down with the cold today, and he just um, thought that, oh, I'm going to get over it, but it didn't happen, so we're going to be missed. It's all good. We will be missing him, and also... Hopefully, I don't screw up any of the production side of things because every single time I do something weird, but hopefully today we make it work. Um, I hope so. Well, it's nice to have you on the show. How how are you going? And give us a little bit of a background of, you know, just to give everyone a bit of perspective of today's topic, um, how are you involved in the industry, where you've come from and things like that? Um, so, for answer your first question, I'm really, really good. Thank you for asking. Um, and awesome. my background in this industry, I've been working with animals um, for a really long time, I first started working with horses when I was about 15, um, which then progressed into a love of more companion animals. Um, I always wanted to go down the route of professionally working with horses, but it was so hard to get into the industry. It just was never going to happen for me. What did you um, actually so do then, with the horses? Um, so I don't know if you've ever heard of it. There's a horse riding ranch at Darks Forest. Um, mm-hmm. So I used to work down there and like run, pretty much look after all the horses down there, um, run the trail rides. My horse was actually boarded down there, had a horse of my own, just did a lot of riding um, and sort of looked at doing dentistry work. Um, and then it just, but it just became too, so expensive and to study just crazy amounts of money. Mm. So and there's, there's a lot of dead end like work. Um, I also worked at Randwick um, in the veterinary hospital there for the horses um, did a bit of stable work with the racing industry, but I don't sort of back that. So that became really hard for me um, and ended up moving into companion animals more. Uh, so dogs and cats did my vet nursing, um, was a vet nurse for a little bit and then turned into working into animal shelters, I think in about 2019 and have been doing that ever since that time. So I've been doing this for a really long time now. Um, did my NDTF dog training qualification um, what else? Multiple courses in animal care, just welfare in general, um, dangerous dog handling, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So very big passion of mine doing it for a really long time. And I know that firsthand because I've known you since, when did I start volunteering at the shelter? About 2012, I think. <laughs> I remember the day that you actually came to the gate. And you made an inquiry and I took your card in to the manager at the time and she was just like so hesitant. And then you actually came back and that was actually what got you volunteering there was that you were so driven to come back <laughs> and you came back again and I spoke to you again and I felt really bad. And I was like, look, we need to like get this guy in here. Like he wants to help. Let's like get him on board and do something great. And it worked out so perfectly. 100%. Thank you so much for that. And I do remember that day. It's um because I left the shelter that I was working at previous to that and I'm like, I really need to at that time for me, get more hands on dogs, continue to help where I can. And I knew that, well, I was just literally around the corner at another shelter and there's not much training being done here. So let's 
stuff kind yeah, of at first it was let's work the dog but then I started to realize oh my god we need to work on every single person here and that yeah and that's it too like as staff members of you know that particular shelter at that time like we weren't trained then like we didn't have the only training that we would have had was a I don't know certificate three in companion animal care or something along those lines there was no dog training there was no dangerous dog handling there was nothing it was just we fed the dogs we got them in a yard if they were lucky enough to get out in a yard and that was sort of it well, they were lucky exactly. to be getting walked at that stage. So, and I do remember, no, when the dogs, I heard a volunteer, I overheard a volunteer saying when we were walking the dogs that at least once a week a dog would get out of the flat collar or out of the harness and everyone had to kind of wrangle away. Every time, every time. And- or like check chains were being used incorrectly or they were too big or they were too this. Oh, just a nightmare. Just, you know, so I thought, <laughs> I remember like some of the things that I helped implement was like martingale for every single dog and, and also trying to help get over that stigma, you know, because when you come into a shelter environment, you have to always – consider that we can talk about something very pragmatic, but it could be very um, confronting to some people. They're like, oh, my God, what do you mean, you know, put a collar on? Or what, what, do you, what do you mean by, you know, how to give a dog a correction? You know, like and all that sort of yeah. stuff has to start. Like it's really helpful to start at the shelter because that's how it then drips feed into the people that even come to adopt the dog, right? Yeah, 100%. And obviously, um, you know, you'd done your dog training course before I had and I did it eventually, and it, but it all started. and. You know, I took what you taught me at that time and what I'd learned when I did the NDTF course and took it into the shelter that I'm in now. Yeah. So, you know, so have past staff members and we're in teaching now, you know, junior people that are in the shelter industry, you know, what, what they should be doing and what's expected of dogs. And um, it's just, it is a drip on effect. So it's amazing, you know, what as a, as a, I hate saying a senior person in the animal industry because it makes me feel really old. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> but that's that's just the reality of it, that I'm exactly. passing that on to these younger, you know, people that hopefully will continue to pass that on when when the day comes I actually ever decide to leave it, which, you know, I don't foresee happening anytime, anytime soon. <laughs> no, but, like, I think it's, it's important, you know, like because who knows what's going to happen in five years, where you're going to be, what you're going to be doing, and we all do have an impact on each other. And I think that is, like, you know, that ripple effect that you think, oh, like, what what good could it be if I helped the dogs at the shelter? Why can't I just help the dogs in the neighbourhood? I could have just gone, hey, knock on all the people that have dogs in the street and go, can I just work with your dogs? Yeah. However, working the shelter is such a different dynamic, you know, and it's really where you get so much. Like, that's where I got all my handling skills and all of my foundations before learning anything formal was that I'd, and, and you'd know the same thing, is that, You'd, you'd learn something in theory and gone, oh, my gosh, that's what I do, like, all the time when I'm doing, you know, when I'm doing that situation, when I'm getting a dog out of the yeah. kennel and I do this. Oh, that's what that thing is. There's a word yeah. to that thing that you just – and um, on the TCP recently they were talking about, you know, having the feel of TCP, like being the, the canine paradigm, talking about having the feel for animal training. And yeah. some people very have such intense feel for the for the scenario that they're in with their dog is that – that's where the communication is. And it's very hard to put that into words, especially, you know, working in the shelter, something, for example, of all the dogs always jump on me when I walk into the kennel. And this could be like oh, every time. All right. And it's like, well, how can we, because one thing about kennel environment as well is that once you develop a bit of a routine and a regiment, there is a massive flow on effect, right? The dogs around get influenced because the excitement 100%. level is not so high. The dogs aren't barking and, it, it's, it doesn't seem so obvious. You have barking dogs, but if you can interact with them appropriately just by when you're walking past a kennel, you can really create a different vibe. It's not like it's going to be harmonious. It's never harmonious in a shelter. Oh, right? no, it's never. But it's it's definitely um, evident too when you, 
we see the way that, um, you know, dogs interact. And it's not just me as a senior staff member where I am. It's, you know, when I see particular dogs work with me and other senior staff members, how they interact with us walking, you know, in front of kennels, behind kennels, as opposed to when we see the junior staff walking in front behind kennels, it's a completely different interaction. And they sort of are very um, in in awe almost of how the dogs are different because they might come up to go, I hate that dog. It does this, it does that. And I get the dog out and I do what I just do naturally because it is so natural to me now. And they go, oh, I can't even believe that, you know, he doesn't do he doesn't do that for me or he won't do that yep. for me. I'm like, it's it's in the training and it's in the years of experience. And I'm always happy to teach, I'm happy to show. Yep. Um, but it, it takes time too, obviously, in the shelter environment, you know, it's well it's such a high turnover. You get um you get discouraged. It's like, oh, I just oh. did all this stuff with this person, now they're not here anymore. And I have to do it right from the beginning again. And it's, and that's the biggest frustration, right? It, and it's huge. And it, the other thing too, I'm finding, um, it's it's a level of like so like you and I, we're both very passionate about dogs and dog training and dog behavior and getting people like us that actually want to work in animal shelters. It's for the younger generation I'm finding it's just about the animal care. They do it because they love the animal. They're not doing it because they love behavior or they love training or yeah. for those aspects of it, it's just that they love caring for animals and they just love dogs and cats in general. It's not about actually rehabilitating and rehoming dogs. It's a completely different level of of um, Yeah, it's true. Of care. So, you know, when you're trying to teach and like they're always sort of happy to learn, but they don't ever want to actively apply. Mm. And that's where it gets exhausting for seeing, for, you know, senior staff members in shelters because we're exhausted. You know, yeah, look, I think as you said it before, like, well, if someone is like, look, I really do love animals, but I hate it when he jumps on me, knocks a bowl of food down, grabs my shirt. And when I try to move in between kennels, he pulls me over and creates a big drama. So, naturally i would think and you would think well then let's learn about their behavior and see how they think and act so we can like teach them and and then then of course for people like me and you have gone down a bit of a rabbit hole with that and gone even <laughs> deeper than the average person which is what makes us professionals and senior it's just that can you create a do we have enough time and can we pay these people enough to stick around so we can create culture around shelters yeah and the issue too is that comes from that is that when these dogs start doing these things and they get away with it once and you know, the, the staff don't know how to handle themselves in that situation. They just leave the dogs in the kennels. So yeah. the dogs get, they don't get out. They don't get anything. And, you know, it's hard. I get it. Like, I really do. I understand. If a dog was tugging on my shirt constantly or biting me or yeah. doing whatever, the, uh, you know, attacking me whenever I went into a kennel and not in a vicious way, but just to a point where I was getting covered in, you know, feces and wee every time, like mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to go in there either. I fully understand that. Yeah. But, you know, let's get the dog out and work it and, you know, see where the issues, you know, lie, whether it just needs to be something as teaching a bed command in the kennel or doing some lead work in the kennel with the dog on, you know, on a slip lead. Like we've all got slip leads. It's quite just simple. Work it on real quick, yeah. Have to take, you know, take two minutes. Just and then, of course, have the tolerance of going, I'm going in there, I know I'll get pushed around. The dog just came in yesterday. I can't I can't train him. I can't rehabilitate him today. Um, no. I have to get in there, do that thing and get out. So how do you – and that's where you develop the feel if you're that type of person to know yeah. how to manoeuvre yourself. You're just like doing these little half spins and turns and the dog's like, what are you doing? And then <laughs> boom, and then get, out, get yourself out. And it's not reinforcing the dog. Actually, the dog's like, that's frustrating and really weird. I used yeah. to always walk around the pouch when I did work at the shelter. Um I just always mark and reward the best behaviour that I saw. That was like the easiest thing to do if a dog was hungry. And yeah. um and so many people don't even like to do that because they forget they can't this, they can't manage it. It's just as easy as putting a pouch on with food. I don't know how difficult it is, but um, but I get yeah, it. It, 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 it definitely it's makes habit. it a lot. Yeah, it definitely makes it a lot harder when you're not carrying a treat pouch. There's no ifs or buts about it. No. But it, no, it just cut up some Devon. Just have it. So just it you're not going to use it for every single time you walk into the no. kennel, but 
certain dogs, you're like, yeah, I'll just feed him every time I walk in when he's got all four paws on the floor and just know how to claim your space and, you know, move through the in and out of the kennel. And it's it's not super difficult, but that, that's for people that listen that do work in shelters or I had a, um, somebody inquire about fostering dogs and I think they volunteer at a shelter or something. But taking on some of this, is it's more about get your hands on, especially this is another thing I was going to say. If you are that good at managing and handling and working with the dogs, then you don't stay at the shelter. You become a dog trainer um, generally. So that's why you don't see the talent and the skill there so much. You may see them in, of course, the senior people that, you know, can do all of the things because working at a shelter is not just about how to train a dog. Certainly not. There's so many more layers to it. But, um, But as I said, I think if government just raised that award rate and made sure that people aren't getting like bare Bare minimum wage. Bare minimum. That's crazy. It's um, it's it is definitely for you know longevity. It's really not a great industry to try and like keep working in. It is very difficult. And like I've left and come back over the years, done other jobs, but I'm always coming back to it because it's my passion and I love it. Yeah. Um, but you know we're inundated with with dogs, and it's not just the shelter that I'm working in right now. It's every shelter. Yeah, every um, shelter. And, and, and COVID. We thought we had a, a good over COVID. Like, oh, look, the dogs will be gone forever. <sighs> Honestly, but it's just, it's it's so much more than COVID. Like everyone goes, yeah, like it's COVID. And it definitely had something to do with that. But since we sort of sprung back from COVID, it's just continuous. So yeah. the shelter that I, that I currently work in, we can hold 63 dogs. And at the moment, the last shift that I worked, we were at capacity. Yeah full capacity and we still had dogs coming in and I had to say to the to other staff I'm like we literally don't have any kennels for these dogs to go into. Yeah. Um and they and a lot of them are, are puppies um that are not microchipped. So not only is there no real education I feel at the moment or it's dropped off. I'm not quite sure what's happened there, but I don't feel like there's enough education around microchipping and registration and the things that you need to do to actually comply with Companion Animal Act and own an animal responsibly, um, the care factor is zero, but there's there's no one's coming forward to claim their animals because they can go and get another one from, you know, Joe Blow that's breeding their dog next door for 20 bucks. There's yeah. no governing bodies around backyard breeding. Well, that was going to be the there's, topic of, of today's discussion, so it's great that we've dovetailed right into it. People yeah. probably don't even know what the hell we mean by backyard breeding you're like uh, what are you talking about <laughs> like just isn't dog a dog and you buy a dog and and for for people like me and you totally know exactly what that means and i've got somebody i'm not going to mention any names but there's somebody that i know that has become a and hasn't become a backyard breeder just an accidental breeding and i want to talk about that um and what should we do about that is that counted as backyard breeding because so many of the times how many clients do i say they're like oh before i dissect i want to have one litter i'm like why and yeah. like, do, do you know how to, like, do you know anything about breeding? Do you know anything about anything, about any of it? And I'm like, no, you know, but it's happened once when, you know, when I was like 13, my dad, blah, blah, some situation like that. Um, and it's so, it's like so stressful for me to hear that. And that's <laughs> like, this is the vet, like, not only the, you know, the shelter staff member of me, but the vet nursing part of me. So I had to do a whelping um, at one stage during my career, and it was um, an artificial insemination for the uh for the bitch and the the puppies were so big on the next ray long story short that they thought she was carrying six pups 
when she went to give birth, she actually only had three. So they miscounted um, pelvises as skulls when they did the x-ray. So the puppies were so big because they, they mated such a big male dog oh, with wow. a small bitch that they were getting stuck. Oh, and gosh. it was her first litter. So this is in the middle of the night and I had to, you know, emergency vet. One of the puppies died. It was so stressful and so traumatic for me because that was all on me. I didn't have anything to do with, you know, the mating of it. But, mm-hmm. you know, people come, people come, and those dogs are worth a lot of money. Um, but, you know, then I hear stories of these people that want, and I hear it all the time, I just want my dog to have one litter before I get to sex. And it just makes yeah. my heart hurt every time because they ha- actually have no idea what they could potentially be in for you know, during the birthing process or she could, you know, they could potentially die through that process. And so then- I wonder, I wonder is there, is there something, because I remember even with our cat, like, you know, she was like a, not even a year old. She had um, a litter and then we dissex her after it. And this is like age as well. I was like 12. And then, you know, it did mature her. You can tell a massive difference. So like, is there something to, is there a process that changes in a dog? when they do have a, a, a litter. Now, in saying that, does that mean that every single dog needs it? Because if we do that, then we wouldn't be, have so many dogs everywhere. That just makes uh-huh. no sense, right? And, and so it, I don't think there's anything to it. I don't think you need your dog to have a litter to become mature. I think obviously cats are heaps different. Um, yeah. And we've got a kitten and the kitten was a sex of like eight weeks old. I think cats yeah. are heaps different because they can like mate really early, right? Yeah, they can. They can have litters from like four months old. So I think the first cat I ever adopted was like six months old and she'd oh, had wow. a litter. That's crazy. And um, they were going to put her to sleep and I was like, oh, my God, no, my heart. So I like took her and then I rehoused her, but she had had a litter. Yes, that's really young. So like, I think dogs may be different and dogs are a different thing because they're not jumping fences and running away and stuff. So I guess in saying that, and there's so much to say about everything that I've just said, we can un- unravel. But the point is, is that I don't think it's necessary and I think, and I fully advise against it every time I see people that have no business breeding dogs to say like, hey, look, like wait until she's at a decent age of her growth, dissex her if you're going to dissex her or manage her appropriately. Um, just because you don't dissex your dog, in my opinion, doesn't mean that you're going to have a litter. just means that you just manage your dog. It's not, that just doesn't seem that hard to me. Um, no. And um but anyway, um, so that's what I think, and obviously you agree, but it's yeah, very no, frustrating to listen yeah, to, right? Yeah, it's definitely um, – it's hard to just to hear people say it because I just – all to me in my mind is that I, I go it's a money – it's a monetary value and for all the money really that you're going to put into it, you're really not going to make anything back unless you are breeding like purebred, I don't know, whatever, whatever breeds you want, purebred, but they've got to be purebred with no health issues and you're selling them for, what, probably $3,000 a pup. Like that's when you're going to make something back. But those dogs have to come with papers. They've got to be microchipped and all the vaccinated and wonderfully treated. And so the outlay. And if anything bad happens along the way. And that's exactly right. Yeah. The time off work. Yeah, emergency vet treatment and, you know, making sure that if it's a mum's first litter, like she doesn't kill all the puppies because they can do that. And it's just there's a lot more to it than what people probably think. So um, backyard breeding is when people that aren't registered breeders that are breeding dogs for monetary value or just breeding dogs because they think, oh, let her have a litter. Like, should we make a distinction? Or are they both the same thing? Oh, no, I think it, I mean, it's really hard. Like, obviously, the litter, that one litter that they've had, like it's a backyard bred dog because technically they're not registered with dogs in New South Wales to be a breeder. So you are still classified as a, as a backyard breeder. Um, but and I is it illegal? Like, is it illegal to backyard breed? Oh, I have done so much looking into this because, in my mind, from when I was always when I was always told that it was illegal, but I ha- can't find any in any legislation anywhere that it's actually legal. It's on the RSPCA's website that they don't advise it, 
Um, when I looked at Dogs New South Wales, it says that if you breed dogs before becoming a registered breeder with them, you can face a judicial hearing, but that's within Dogs New South Wales. But in any in legislation, and if anyone can please, you know, f- prove me wrong because I have looked and I can't find it anywhere. Um, and I think this is the big, one of the biggest governing issues we have with backyard breeding in as itself is that there's no one's really controlling it. There's no, like, the, what is there, five, I think, RSPCA inspectors across the whole of New South Wales. I'm not sure how many the Animal Welfare League have, but there's five people, you know, responding to that across the whole of New South Wales and they've mm-hmm. got two team leaders. Um, and it's really not at the top of their list like backyard breeding because they've got so many bigger things going on and they deal not with only companion animals but they're looking after livestock complaints and, you know, puppy farms and those bigger, bigger, not just not an issue but those are really big issues, you know, those sort of things. Um, so I can't find anything and, 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 yeah, it is really hard and no one's governing it. Police can't govern it because it's not actually written in, you know, a law enforcement order that they have to follow. Um, so people can really do what they want. There's no no one to say that you can't do it. There's and no law to think, say that you can't. Do you think there should be a restriction on that, that you have to be 100%. registered? 100%. So we've had a dog come in to a facility, our facility recently who is well-known to us. She's been in to the facility 15 on 15 different occasions. She is a whelping dog and she's not a purebred dog. She's a crossbred dog. We've also got one of her puppies that's, one and a half years old in the facility at the moment that's still in the in the breeder's name and that bitch came in with an eight-week-old puppy. Mm. She The condition of the dog is out of control. Um, the, there was a rescue group that contacted this owner and, you know, said that they'd pay for the dog to be dissexed. She said no because she just wants to keep breeding her to make the money. Um, and it's ju- just as an example, like that's how. And how is common is that? How common are backyard breeders? Oh, uh, really? Like obviously against what? But like do you think it's heaps more than people think? Yeah, I do. I think it's a lot more than what people realise and especially in, um, you know, a low socioeconomic area where people are struggling to make money or they just don't see any any other way out of, you know, trying to obtain some finance if they can't get a job or they could be struggling with Centrelink or they're you know physically unable to get a job like I can't answer it but I feel like it's an or easy just solution. people like mismanaging dogs well definitely then- there's a lot of mismanagement there's a, definitely a lot of people doing it for the wrong reason um and so most so you think most people that are breeding dogs not registered are because it's intentional to make puppies rather than oh my make money dog. yeah okay it's just a, it's, it's a money it's a money grab and you know they're not the biggest issue outside of that is that because they probably give them away for so cheap, like they're not getting microchipped, they're not getting vaccinated, they're not getting any sort of treatments whatsoever. So and these just, dogs are more commonly ending up in shelters eventually? Shelters, correct. So we're getting, you know, it's your stuffy, your stuffy mixes, anything stuffy, anything massive, anything big. That's but, usually the case. Always. It's nothing, nothing small. And anything we get small, usually a purebred dog that gets picked up. Pretty much straight away, or isn't that always the case? Um, every time I, I always, from my experience, time. is that it's usually the biggest, strongest, powerful breeds that are just rocking up everywhere. It's like, where are they coming from? Just and you don't see it's not like you're seeing these like pure German Shepherds running around, like sometimes, well, sometimes was, for sure, but they're just, not, they don't look that good. Though, no, I was bread. just, <laughs> uh, yeah, I was just about to say we've had a bit of an increase in Shepherds, um, okay, at, at the moment, and 
we've actually had a couple of mal- Malinois come through too. You don't see heaps um, of cavoodles, huh? No, never, never. never. But where yeah, I, I didn't think I didn't think I even saw a cavoodle until I started working at like when I started working at pet resorts from the shelter. I'm like, oh look at all these dogs, they look so nice. <laughs> like, I'm normally used to seeing like these little bitses and the the weirdest the weirdest mixes, and now I see all these pure dogs. I'm like, oh wow, this is like a different different level of exposure to dogs. It was hilarious. It- when I started working in the, the shelter that I'm working in right now compared to where I was working, the level of like the, the completely different type of dog, like the dogs that I'm dealing with right now are dogs that are just like left in a backyard that have nothing done with them and then one day they get out and they're not exposed to anything. So yeah. they're petrified of life or they hate men or they don't want to be touched by anyone or you try to put them on the lead and they want to attack you or they crocodile roll and bite the lead and uh, there's – Compared to so the low, you know, socioeconomic area compared to where I was working in a higher socioeconomic area, they're just the dogs' personalities and everything in themselves. They are so different; you can't even put them on the same level, and it's really can be quite dangerous. Like that's interesting been, for you to say that, just so people that are listening, like it's not just dogs are dogs. Even from hearing this, it's that well, we're even in your like we're in Sydney. It's not like we're talking about different countries or anything. We're talking about just kilometres away. Yeah, just, definitely. D- just, just the population itself and, and the attitude changes that. So I think it's not an easy, it's not so easy to kind of put our finger on this is the reason for anything because there's so many variables, you know? Yeah, heaps. And I, I, I feel like there needs to be, you know, more responsibility from the government focusing on, you know, let's, um, you know, focus on getting programs or if people can't afford, if people can't afford, especially in this day and age, you know, interest rates and, price, you know, price of living just in general. Like if people Crazy. can't afford to get, yeah, if people can't afford to get your dog microchips but you want a companion, that's fine. And, you know, let's set something up where we can afford to, so they can come and get it done. Yeah. Or, you know, let's, you know, lower the cost of dog registration so people actually pay it. Like that's risen almost doubled since I've, I remember registering, registering one of my dogs when she was dissexed for, I think it cost me $40. Mm-hmm. And an yeah, undersexed dog, an undersexed male or female dog was 150 bucks. That's jumped up to like $280 now. Yeah, true. It's just, it's, cra- it's crazy. So people are never going to pay it unless they're absolutely forced to. And then you have to pay a late fee on top of that because you haven't paid it on time. And it's got to be paid by six months of age. And like, people can't afford it. People don't have the money. Yeah, so, so like how- we're. We're over, we're underregulating and overpaying. Yeah, hundred percent. There's no, there's no regulation, and people are also on top of that. Like people are undereducated about it as well. Like what you actually need to do to meet the standard of having that dog. Like even simple things of wearing a collar and tag. Like every single dog that comes into where I am right now, there is not one of the, I swear, the sixty-three that we had come in that would have had a collar with a tag on. They might have had a collar, but none of them ever have tags. With contact number or a name, ever, not one. So, so we think. So, if we could say like chicken or the egg situation, is it backyard breeding or is it the people's attitude towards dogs? Because I would be very mindful where I purchase my dog from. Um, yeah, hundred percent. My attitude. So, 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 is it something that we don't? Because, and and the next thing that we're going to talk about is. Well, why are there all these government interventions and how we train our dogs when there's people that are risking the welfare of, like, you know, can we say millions or lots, thousands and thousands of dogs? Maybe millions across well, Australia anyway. I, I, um, yeah, I, f- I feel like the way that the government's headed with what they're doing and the changes that they're making, 
it's it's going to really put a lot of dogs' lives at risk because there's so many dogs that need, you know, the p- particular tools and interventions that we have to use um, and they're taking that away and that makes it really hard. So from your perspective, because you're more fresh in it, you see it daily almost, yep. is what are the welfare issues of the result of backyard breeding? Well, you know, poorly bred dogs to start, um, just, you know, their general health, um, general well-being, um, you know, coats, skin, stuffies with chronic anxiety, separation anxiety, scaling fences, um, behaviours that are really dog, dog reactivity. I know dogs are, you know, generally reactive in shelters, but I'm talking about dogs that can't be, you know, 100 metres within seeing another dog. Um it's just, it's everything. It's the and so general. from that, if you're a good breeder, you would breed dogs with sound health yeah, and sound dogs. And it's part of it. So um, just before we started this chat, actually, I looked up. Um, there's a whole list of documents on the RSPCA website, and one of the um, conditions that they have is if you are breeding a dog, uh, breeding your dogs, that they have to be of, you know, obviously sound temperament and good health, and they can only have one litter a year. And it's just not things that are being followed, um, as far as I'm concerned, because the amount of dog, the influx of dogs that we've that we're having, and that we've had, and they're all young, like they're not. We, we like, you know, often we might get a seven or plus, uh, you know, aged dog, but it's not very often. And I'm seeing more puppies than I've ever seen in the amount of years I've been doing this. Like everyone always, you know, goes, oh, you know, around Christmas time. You know, everyone's got a puppy and they don't want them anymore. Like, mm-hmm. that's not really a thing. It's just dogs all the time. It's just dogs all the time. But puppies now, like, just, and we're talking about, like, I've had so many baby puppies and, like, stuffies, like, ranging from six weeks old to all the way up to, you know, 12 months. Like, one of the dogs we've currently got came in, I think he was only three months old and he's still there. And so he'd probably be, how long has he been there for? Months now. He'd almost mm. be going on, he'd be coming up to, 12 months old yeah, and well. he's, lived his whole, he's lived his whole life there. He doesn't know anything outside of that place. Can we draw a distinction between backyard breeding and puppy farms? Are they the same thing? No, very different. Okay. Like so, to me personally. we made a so, massive thing about puppy farms and everyone knows what a puppy farm is, but like no one knows about like we'll call it the backyard breeding epidemic sort of situation. Yeah. So your backyard breeding, you just, you know, you have your dog that's on heat and you mate it with whatever male dog that you've got. You might you might have those two dogs that you just constantly mate, but you only have those two dogs where a puppy farm you have multiple dogs breeding constantly all the time. It's a full operation. In. Yeah, it literally is an operation where they're like they're in cages and it's, you know, usually Is there heaps of that? Poor. Have we cracked down more on that? Are we seeing less of that? I haven't really seen very much of that, but the um, and this is how we sort of even came onto this when I contacted you with the rescue post about the puppies that were so badly if from a puppy farm that were you know living in their own feces that the skin had been you know taken off their paws and they were covered in fleas and ticks and um, so that's the first case which of makes puppy- no sense to me. You have something that you want to sell and they're like in, in these conditions. I know, it, just, oh, it doesn't I make know. any sense to me. But it doesn't. It, it doesn't make any sense at all. But. Um, that's the first puppy farming thing that I have heard or seen or come across in a really, really long time. So um, whether it's more like a rural issue for that, I'm not 100% sure. I'm sure there's puppy farms, you know, within Sydney, I don't doubt it, but I feel like for us right now, backyard breeding is, you know, taking taking over. Yeah, for sure. So we see that, okay, so we thought we went off tangent. So some of the welfare issues from backyard breeding is like poorly bred dogs and- Temperament is huge. Temperament, yeah. Temperament's massive. 
And then also, obviously, the care of the dogs because obviously, well, not obviously, because I guess there's some backyard breeders that probably do a decent job. They just haven't registered themselves and they just, they probably, if they were registered, maybe they'd be okay. Yeah, yeah, and no, that, you know, maybe. and yeah, no, possibly. I mean, that's not to say that every single backyard breeder is, um, you know, not breeding their dogs correctly and, and not doing the right thing because they're not registered. But from what I'm seeing in the dogs that because technically, sorry through. to cut you off, just while it's fresh. Technically, okay. we shouldn't see mixed dogs that much if no, we well, learn backyard breeding, right? Yeah, correct. So what we should be well, the only sort of dogs that before cavoodles were a thing because that was a huge like when That's those sure. poodle oodle things became. They were backyard bred dogs, but then they became, I'm pretty sure they became a registered breed. So that was a huge yeah. thing because it was a crossbred dog, but it became a registered breed. Yeah, true. Um, and that was that was so many years ago. And well, I, I guess that has to breed. happen because breeds cross over to become other breeds eventually. Yeah. Like it has so that, to happen. Yeah, and I that guess. was a huge, massive thing because they started breeding those dogs for people that were having allergies and couldn't have hair and the poodles yeah. don't shed and that was that really big thing. So, um, but, yeah, it just... If they're, it's just if they're not, the, you know, they're pure, not that they even have to be pure bred, but it's just the mixes that we kind of get. We get some of the, so like a Marama cross, for example, mm-hmm. like why sure. are you breeding a yeah. Marama that yeah. is designed to herd sheep and guard them or any sort of stock and they only attached to one person? Yeah, they're then so we get, tough to try you know, to work with. We, we get these we get these dogs in and we go, are you for real? Like what mm. are we supposed to do with this dog who doesn't cope in this environment at the best of times anyway? Now yeah, we've got true. this these two crossbred or like a Sharpe cross Mastiff or something like that. We get these really hard like dogs. You don't often get I don't know what they're trying to put into these two dogs, whether it's just because someone had you know, a female Sharpe on heat and a Mastiff, an entire Mastiff that they thought would be a really good idea to breed together. They're not breeding them to get, you know, the best traits and the best qualities out of those two breeds to make this well, awesome dog. It, and then They're it, just breeding it, them for the sake of Because it them. looks cool. Yeah. Um, but then it also does also come to the point of the, um, you know, the, the evolution of the dog to become, but like no one's rarely, like the amount of dogs that are being bred or that are mating, aren't their offspring aren't even going to have any functional roles. So no, does, that's so right. Like, and, and that becomes even more difficult, especially since like sport dogs and, and most activities for dogs, even though we're not going to give their traditional job, that's like, you know, the hunting the, the and the herding and all of that. We're not doing any of that. So we can like do make-believe ones like agility and nose works and all that sort of stuff. But that's not a real, real common thing. So we're like, what are we even breeding dogs for? Yes, for hyperallergenic and all that sort of stuff. Like we have to change the way we have our relationship with breeding so that we can see the next 50 years to become, to have some purpose. Otherwise, why why should we breed? Like, well, and then, of course, and inevitably comes to, well, then, and I'm going to talk about the person who doesn't like dogs. Well, why do you even need any of these dogs that have that traditional job and they don't need it anymore and they're powerful hunting sort of dogs, hunting livestock um, um, protectors and all that sort of essence of what the dog is supposed to be. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have them and, and we can, you know, domesticate them to live perfectly in our lives, but on such a mass scale, looking at it like in, you know, from a 30K view of it all, we have to change what we're doing with 
with the attitude of dogs and who even purchases dogs. Like there's so many people that I see like have no business have purchasing that breed. And from even from a puppy, I'm like, what were you even thinking about getting yeah. X breed in your situation? Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, 100%. And, um, you know, a lot of people when I'm out and we have the discussions where it comes up about like what I do and, oh, yeah, I'm a dog trainer, I'm doing been doing this for a really long time, whatever, I work in the animal industry and they go, oh, I want to, I've been thinking about getting a, a German Shepherd. And a keto. <laughs> yeah, something. Or I've been thinking about getting an American stuffy, and I just go, you know what? Like they're not the first time dog owners. They're yeah, just not. I agree. And it, it's even with your, um, you know, registered breeders for German Shepherds, the the quality of dog. It's usually a show line dog. So then, mm-hmm. if you're going down the route of getting a working line dog, unless you've worked a working German Shepherd before, like you are in for a hell of a time because totally. they are. Hard and it's not just them. It'd be like getting a purebred Sharpay. If someone said to me, "I want to get a purebred Sharpay," I would say that you were crazy. Yeah. Because what do you want to do with that dog? Why do you want to get that dog? Mm. What is it? What's your driving force between for getting that dog? And I'll discuss and I discuss all of these things with them, and they sort of whether they listen to me or not, it's completely you know out of my control. But I feel like they definitely take on board what I say. If I can at least sort of talk people down from maybe an American stuffy to like an English stuffy, I know that they can be intense too. But I feel like it's no, a starting it point. Sense. I think it's a better it starting point than an American stuffy, especially if you're just going to go and buy one from Gumtree because, I agree. You, you know, the temperament of the parents, you don't know anything about them, the health, um, the history, just everything. It, they're, you know, and they go, oh, yeah, I heard that they're really good with kids or heard that they're really good protectors. I'm like, well. You know, I was speaking nah. to the guy at Petto the other day buying the, um, the pet food and he's like, oh, you know, like these people that come in, they have no idea, blah, blah. And he obviously knows what I do. So we're chatting about it. But I, and I said to him, like, yeah, you should have seen man. I first had a dog. I had no idea what the hell I was doing. <laughs> the, the amount of crazy shit that I thought and even did, like, it makes no sense. But it's like, but that's that's supposed to be that way. And how do you know what happens after? Like, you know, I had no idea about German Shepherds. I go to German Shepherd and now I have all these issues and I did some stuff. And now I am good with German Shepherds. Like, you have to have some of that. I don't want to shun too much of, you know, like, you know, step out of your comfort zone, things happen. Like, I get all that too, but I just think a lot of times it doesn't work out like that. Like when people literally say, I love the way an Akita looks and I heard so much good things about it. I'm like, I don't know what good like- thing you can hear about an Akita unless you want to hunt bears. There's like, <laughs> there's no necessary. And, and unless you're an experienced dog owner or even, yeah. you know, someone down the street that I know um, with an American bully, there's, it's like for the first time, like looking after dog food, like they can be intense. We don't even know that much about them because like, you know, so new, but also they yeah, are a, a lot of dog. And if you don't have experience with handling, you know, high energy, high drive dogs, just period, then there's certain breeds for certain personality types as well. Yeah. I just like, mm, I just think that's a bad idea. I would probably go, you know, cause I think he was thinking Frenchie, which I'm not, like I, I don't generally recommend Frenchies just because of their health issues generally. But a Frenchie yeah. or, or the bully, I'm like, I, for you, I think the Frenchie would be perfect for your life compared to the bully. So I get people to go, give me a top five breeds. Tell me why you like them. And and we've had a, um, an episode on the podcast on how to choose a dog and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, most people that are going to be listening to this, I care, like care or they're learning some stuff, but I care enough to even listen this far into an episode of a podcast to hear what we're saying right now. So, the, we're talking about the Joe Blow that me that knows nothing. So if we were to address that, do we need? How do we change? Do we have to change attitude? That would be ideal. Or do we make need to make more laws and more rules? And then, um, 
Like that's I tough, honestly, right? Yeah, I honestly think that it sort of needs to be a combination um, of both. And that's not to be hard on the people. Like that's not what I want. I want everyone to have a dog. I want everyone to have a best mate that they can love. And I just, you know, like I've had dogs forever and I've gone from small dogs. Like I've had Maltesers and Pomeranians to, you know, English stuffies to American stuffies to a Rottweiler cross to a Husky. And now I've got two German Shepherds. Like I, you know, try it out, you know, get yeah. different breeds, but make sure you're getting something that you can look after where it's not going to end up in the shelter. And I think this is where it all stems from for me because mm. I'm looking after those dogs. Yeah. I'm the one that's handling those dogs when they fail for you because you couldn't give it the time or you didn't realise what you're getting yourself into or you didn't get the training that you should have done or, you know, your no. family expanded and you had children and the dog's too much. Like I've got to deal with that dog or yeah. I'm the one that's got to be there when it's being euthanized. So I think that's the driving force for me why, you know, it's really hard because like when I hear people go, oh, I just want to get a stuffy and I go, you know what, like go and, go and rescue one. Yeah. Instead of on top of all that, go and rescue one. You don't need a pup. Yeah. Because do you have the time to train a pup? Most people don't really, realistically. It's mm. very hard. Very it's hard. a lot of time and a lot of effort. That's true. And in saying that, we, people that have worked in the shelters and hands-on be there, you have a, I wouldn't say a bad taste in your mouth, but you have the experience of going, I know how crazy and ugly it can get. And I know I see all the irresponsible, out-of-control dogs. I see, you you know, being in that environment, you're seeing usually the worst of the worst. You see some awesome dog come in. If it doesn't get claimed, he's the first one out. They're awesome. Have a good time with them. Dog's just happy to get lucky, whatever. But there's dogs where you're like, oh, man, we're going to see. He's going to be around for 14 months. This guy's going to be tough. And, you know, someone's going to look after him. But, you know, we see we see the the shit end of the stick so much. Even as a dog trainer, you're seeing like usually the worst behaviors in dogs, and it's hard to be super over the top optimistic. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And I think yeah, no, just, I think we you- can be optimistic. I'm pretty optimistic. I believe. I think you are too. It's just we've got a good balanced view of it to see. Like I see the worst end of it. I see the best end of it, and. We're not making policy right now, so we're not coming up with a, this is what we're going to do. We're just, you know, talking shit and, and kind of getting it out there. For people that maybe hopefully have a bit more of influence or if this could be one of those ripple effects where we can start to you know, do something different about it, it's going to oh, change wish, our approach. I wish it would be a ripple effect because there needs to be some, like if, you know, the government really wants to see some changes in in this industry um, and I feel like it gets overlooked a lot, Um until people jump up and down about things that are perceived as cruel and, you know, the sort of that makes it really hard and it creates a divide between, you know, the yeah, two. We're, we're dividing about what tool we're going to use to give that dog the best life where if we if we went to war with that forever, there, there's still dogs that are living and being raised and being born in unideal situations, being sold to people that have no business having a dog. There's no vetting process. No, there's no, no nothing. No, that's right. There's there's no nothing. So, and a lot of the, like, so I do a lot of, um, like where I am currently, I do a lot of um, behaviour assessments for these dogs. Um, obviously, the suitability profiles for when they're being rehomed. Um, you know, what I see, one of the things I have to answer is what training tool would be best for me? And never off the bat do I ever go straight to a prong collar. Of course Ever. Not. Um, it's always a, ma- a martingale at a minimum um, yep. because I haven't seen these dogs in a home environment, so mm-hmm. I've got to work off what how I How are they going to do with pressure? How are they going to – like even just – like, and, and we said, and let's make that clear, it's not like, oh, of course not, we're not going to choose prong collar first because it's the most 
whatever. It's like, no, no, because you don't even know how the dog will perceive pressure. You may put, That's right. you, you can put a bit of pressure on a martingale collar and the dog can be like, what just happened to me? And it's so, like, and oh, are, you've never yeah. worn a leash before. So yeah. um, that's good to know. Thank you very much for that. Um, yeah. So how can I, the dog tell you? Go ahead. Well, that's right. So when I do the assessments, like I always do them with the martingale collar on and I generally know, like, and it'll be, it could be the biggest dog that we've got there who responds so well to the martingale and I go, perfect, this is absolutely perfect for you. And then I'll, I'll get a little wiry, I don't know, mixed breed, breed of everything and I'll put a martingale on and there is absolutely no response. And immediately I know that the best communication tool for this dog is going to be a prong collar outside of this environment yeah. because it's not responding to anything else that I'm offering it, not, not a single thing. Um, and that would be really like for that to be taken away, I think I, as a dog trainer myself, I would find that really hard um, to try and manage because we also don't have the ability to use e-collars. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it just I think it would become really difficult, but that's part of what we have to do. And when I write that down, and I don't expect everyone to want to have to use that tool, but, you know, it, it is a really big tool in, <clears throat> in the tool belt that I currently am assessing these dogs on because I know that that would yep. be best for them until they get, you know, until they desensitize and, you know, decompress and they, just get into that home, then it can can downscale if it needs to. It doesn't always have to be a prong collar until they can communicate correctly, but it might always have to be. Exactly. It just depends. I, I think to to say that you're not, it's like saying like to, to get rid of the wrong things at the wrong time is going to be the worst. Or maybe as, as we've discussed before in, in many episodes, maybe it's an agenda for things to come. It's like, look, it's a big problem we have with these powerful hunting breeds. Um, it's a bit of an issue. People don't need it unless they have a, an actual functional utility for it. What the hell is going on? And and maybe in 50 years you look back and go, well, can you believe they had like these wolf animals like in their backyards and they were like <laughs> doing like just going for walks to parks with it? Like you may think that's like completely out of control. So so probably maybe our attitude would change in that and that in this sort of domestic environment, maybe the norm will be nothing bigger than a Kelpie sort of thing. And, yeah, you know, m- maybe maybe it's a little bit better for dogs in the general. I don't know. Um, and it, there's definitely some, some truth in something that you said earlier, um, you know, particular breeds that, you know, once upon a time, you know, we, we had hunting dogs and, you know, bassets and we had, you know, dogs protecting herds and we had all that sort of stuff. Like is the need for those breeds, you know, the same as what it was 50 years ago? Do we really need, and not that I'd ever like to see a dog breed particularly, you know, bred out, but is there a need for us to continue like where's the where's the supply and demand? Yeah. Like, do we exactly. need to keep? Do we really need to keep breeding these particular breeds? And I get, you know, they do shows for dogs, and that's completely different. Like showing dogs is not any anywhere near, you know, what people breed dogs for at the moment. But no. Um. Just yeah, where's the supply and demand for these big big breeds when you know people are struggling to find houses to live in in, in properties? Like a lot of people are in small, yeah. you know complexes, units, townhouses with no yards, with a uh, dog can't meet the, the need that, that it has. For sure. I think someone with like more of the breeding background, like I'm, well, if you're listening to this and maybe getting triggered by what we're saying because we're like, I don't know, sorry, we're just saying are. things. <laughs> Not meaning to offend. These are just thoughts that I'm having. We're, we're just talking out loud. We're just, we're, we're thinking out loud. We're having a chat. We're not like, absolutely, I think about this because as soon as something comes out of my mouth, I'm like, oh, there's like five <laughs> things that we need to like full go deep <laughs> on to, to even make sense of that and to make that even more clearer because I'm also keeping in mind that whoever I'm talking to, yes, we we talk to um, like other dog trainers and other people in the industry. I totally get it. And you probably understand where, where we're at. 
but also the everyday dog owners are like, what, like, could be also thinking, what the hell are you even talking about? Um, I think we make it pretty lame in terms that like of what we're saying now, but um, but it is interesting, and I think I need to have a bit more thought about about that. You know, in terms of the future. Do we need certain breeds? Do we not need certain breeds? I've got a coolie in my backyard. You've got a German Shepherd. We don't, we're not herding sheep, but they're awesome dogs for us and they do everything we want them to do and for the training that we enjoy doing and the lifestyle that we have. So I don't think it's unnecessary. And there's people that have American Savvy that live an awesome life. And then there's that, and there is that guy that has an Akita and that dog lives his best life too. So I don't yeah, think 100%. That everything I'm saying here are not like absolutes. They're just. No, we've seen some, and anyway, every time I've gone to a house with Nikita, I think there's only been one out of like the I haven't seen heaps. Let's say maybe about eight or ten. There's only been one that I've been like, this is an outstanding situation. Every other time, it's like the same issue: dominant, aggressive towards dogs and people. It's like no one can come in, no one can do anything. Awesome dog, mad for the family, but they, but Hate in a, yeah, in a, <laughs> in a dense environment when lots of people are coming over your house for parties. That dog is hating life. So yeah, of course. most people aren't managing their situation appropriately, and we go into all of that. But I think it's important here that we think about, well, there's heaps of dogs being bred in the back. Oh, there's something I want to, like, um, and I'm pretty sure I've said this in the podcast. Again, it's very hard to say what I've even said, but I'll say it again, and I won't say any names because it is what it is. But I have a good friend of mine, um, family friends, and he was the, 100% of the impression that the his Frenchies have to be artificially inseminated for them to make babies. That was like fully his belief. So he's like, all right, I got my mum's dog, I got my dog, they're just hanging out. It is what it is. And of course, they got pregnant. And um yeah. now they had all these puppies. So like, oh my God, now it's like raised puppies. And for them it was good because he outsourced it to someone who has had experience. She did the um the whole process up until they were like around seven to eight weeks old, came back to my mate's house, ready to be sold. Which is so and, amazing that they were able to find the support because it wasn't obviously something that was intentional, and yeah. it you know to, to be able to have support to get through that like is is amazing. Yeah, life saving. I think very good friends of them, and they also like raise and um, raise kittens. They're like a like they do um, like a rescue. They raise the kittens, do whatever, and then rehome them. And I think she's had experience, maybe vet nurse um, with puppies, so it worked out for them, which is like awesome. Yeah. Um, Maybe he struggled a little bit to get rid of all of them, like at a decent sort of time. But I remember his mum was like, "Oh my god, like this can never happen again. So much work, yeah. so much this, and so stressful." And I feel bad for the dogs and puppies, and like it's a whole, it's a whole ordeal that she's like, "Oh my god, it is exhausting, and it is not like a breed an easy thing." That's why I always say, keep it to the people that just know what they're doing. Like, yeah, like don't get your neighbor next door to be like, "Look, I've had a couple of dogs. Let me help you train." Like, it's probably better get one decent session with a decent dog trainer. You get so I much also more. think, yeah, I also think too on that on that topic. A lot of people don't actually think that their dogs are going to mate if they have a male and female undersex dog together. They just don't ever think it's going to happen. There yeah. are so many phone calls we get that come through, and they go, oh, "It was an accident." But like, it's it's biological. I don't know. I don't really. Yeah, I don't know much about the whole process. I've never really paid any attention. But a bitch has to be in heat to make a, a baby, right? Yes, correct. Yeah, she's got to be in season. So, so then, and that's like a certain amount of time, right? Like four weeks or eight weeks or something. No, six weeks. Four to yeah, six. Yeah, so I think it's between four, four to six. I'm probably a bit I'm not up to like date on that for sure. Okay, patient, but it is a, it's a fair amount of time. Like there is there is a good chunk of time that a female is. It's not like it only goes for a couple of days. So um, then, after they've for, been in heat, let's say it's been two months after she's been here, you know that she's not going to be in heat 
for the next, oh, well, you don't know, but let's just say it's another six to eight months until she's in yep. season again. Can you manage the dogs both being undersexed in away from those times? How do you even know when to, like she may be in heat and you don't know it until like the visuals, visible signs. Yes, yeah, too late. So it's just like it's a very tough situation. So if you're going to have an undersexed male and female, like they can't yes, be hanging out un- unattended together. No, it is really hard to manage. Um, I know that when um, I was involved in the whelping that I was involved in, like it was very um, timed and it was technical and there is there is a perfect timing to it. Um, sort of like humans actually, it's a lot to do with, you know, um, body-based temperature and all that sort of stuff and almost like similar to ovulation but not. Um, so it was an interesting thing to be involved in, um, but there's a lot that goes into it. But naturally, like when you, when you do have a male – and female dogs that are both undersexed, like, you know, they, they figure it out. Of course. <laughs> they know what they're doing. Been doing it for billions they, of years, right? Yeah, they do it and it's just, it is what it is. But, but I think my mate, because he thought, well, they can't do it naturally because of, I don't know, because Frenchies are all weird and maybe they've got some other <laughs> weird thing that they can't even make properly. <laughs> I didn't even know that was a thing until he said, I'm like, I've never heard that before. So he's like, oh, oh I damn. I can't comment. I haven't, I haven't heard that either. I don't yeah. know about Frenchies. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. So um, so he screwed up and it is what it is and the experience was what it was. And I guess he accidentally then became a backyard breeder, I guess. Um, And that was an accidental breeding. It is what it is. Should there be, like, and what is there? What support is there for people that, have an accidental breeding compared to like, are there people that like, I guess my friend sorted out a situation. I think that's pretty unique. Are there people yeah, that definitely. are like, Oh yeah, I can help raise your, bu- bu- your puppies because I know what to do. Like, is this, is that a service? No, no, it's not a service. There's nothing. There's no, there's no support. There's not even, you know, and I've, I've spoken about it earlier, but you know, there's not even support with getting your dogs microchipped or um, there's not much support in getting your dogs to sex. Like I know that there's a few different things out there for, um, you know, discounted to sexing, but I don't really feel like it's it's very advertised and it's not really pushed through community. So um, if your dog accidentally falls pregnant and it was a complete accident um, and it happens and it happens more than what people would actually think that it does, there is absolutely nothing. Unless you know a breeder, you can contact someone. And I can guarantee you that, you know, people that are registered breeders that are breeding purebred dogs are not going to want to help you with your crossbred yeah. Yeah. puppies because it's not exactly. very often really that you have an accidental breeding of two french bulldogs it just doesn't happen yeah, um sure. it's it's usually um you know you your female got out because she's on heat and sure. went looking for a mate and you sure, know, she sure. came back and you found her and you didn't know that that happened in the time that she was out but it did and then you know next minute sure. okay she's round and pregnant and look and some people are like hey man get over it my my bitch had a, an accidental breeding and we just got over it and how we did what we had to do and whatever. I'm like, yeah, look, it's not the big end of the world. I'm not saying, oh, my God, we need someone to help us. Like sometimes some people need help. Some people just pull it off because we're resilient and things happen. Um, and most of the time it just it is what it is, right? I guess it's just important that we talk about, and I think what triggered us most is, well, why is there all this government intervention about what collar I put on my dog when – People aren't even worried about where the dogs even come from. <laughs> you care so yeah, much about, right. about the dog. And one, another thing as well to, that we can maybe mull over more is if we, if people at shelters are like one of the primary places where people come in contact to rescue dogs, a lot of the times I know there's rescue organisations, but I think it's also important that we advocate for using a leash and, you know, using all quadrants of behaviour when it comes to, I mean, of motivation to help a dog's behaviour and to make it a normal thing. Let's not pretend just because we're at a shelter that we don't put pressure on a dog or give a dog a correction. I think it's almost like, oh, you 
like, you know, you're in this place and you have to like look after the dogs. Like, yeah, you got to like guide them. I'm not saying go there and put unnecessary pressure on the dog, but if no, I'm going to go no, walk the biggest dog in the shelter, that dog is going to be walked with a slip lead and you and walked appropriately. And, um, and you know what? We're going to modify some of his behavior. And if everyone can be consistent, the people that are chose correctly for to work with the harder dogs, if we can keep some consistency, this dog goes out, stays in the new home. We do that with the next dogs and we create a new way of being. So there's twofold to this. It's that government is putting pressure on the use of tools. And then, of course, minority groups are doing the same thing. So then now the use of tools are being demonized. So we can't use them in the place where we're looking after the dogs because the shelter is not supposed to be a bad place, supposed to be the best place um, as, as possible for a dog. And then that changes our mindset and then it drips down to the owners because whichever shelter you go to, they're going to recommend certain dog trainers. So, yeah, yeah, 100%. And so I wonder if there's like a study to say, or maybe we should design a study, certain shelters of, um, recommend like balanced trainers, certain shelters recommend positive only. And if more dogs come back, depending on where, like maybe that could be cool to, to see. I know there's, again, be- millions of variables, but still. Yeah, I mean, it would be a very sort of interesting study. Um, and don't, don't get me wrong, like, you know, as a balanced trainer, like positive reinforcement for some dogs only, if that works, awesome. Happy days, obviously. That's amazing. But the majority of the dogs But those are, dogs aren't there for 18 months in the shelter. No, and, and that's right, they're not. And they're really well balanced, like everything about them is well balanced, mm-hmm. every single part of them. Their health, their mental state, um, you know, their stress levels, their dog reactivity, like all those things are generally quite balanced. and there's not really a need to use anything else very often when those dogs are just so compliant and they just go, okay, no worries. This is what you want me to do. I'll take that treat and I'll, I'll do everything you want. But 80 or between 80 and 90% of those, I'm going to say more, it's more than that's probably 90% and above of those dogs that I see just can't, can on, cannot alone have that mm. positive reinforcement because they don't have to listen. Yeah. We have to change our paradigm. It worked back in the day, let's say 50, 60 years ago, where Dog ownership probably wasn't like it's so different. It's like it's really hard because traditionally, how we even 50 years ago, how we looked after dogs and how we look after them today, not to mention the amount of dogs we have and the demand for like there's yeah. so many things that have changed. But let's just say back in the day, we live in smaller sort of towns and cities, and you know, there's a certain amount of dogs and there's a few shelters and there's enough people that take the dogs on and it's very manageable. But in this time, we haven't added more shelters. Since our local shelter for this area, if I live my, lose my dog here, I'm pretty sure I'm driving to Austral to pick up my dog. Yeah, okay. And that's not around the corner either. That's, is like, it? that's ridiculous. And I know they got, just got rid of Sydney Dogs and Cats and around the corner. They're going to eventually take it to Cornell, like who knows, another 15 years or something. Um, but it's like, why isn't that like, why is it such a struggle to put a shelter in the area where there's like a billion dogs everywhere? Like in every this- house is a dog. Yeah, and this is, you know, one of the biggest issues. Like, and again, we come back to that backyard breeding thing. Like, we have so many people breeding and breeding and breeding with not enough space to take on the dogs. There's no, you know, microchips. There's no nothing. There's no way to identify dogs to people. There's no way to reconnect them. Um, and even if they do find out in shelters that we do have their dogs, the cost to get the dog out of that place, because it's usually after a couple of days where they might have seen it shared on Facebook or so it accumulates every day, right? For yeah, people that don't know. It go, yeah, it goes up every day, and then there's an impounding fee as well. So, however much that is, varies from place to place. But let's say on average, it's you know at least 110 bucks. I'm going to say thereabouts, give or take. Um, and you, For what, you know, a you day? Sus- 
so that's that's just an impounding fee. So the, because the dog would be brought into the animal shelter, it gets impounded. So there's mm-hmm. an impounding fee straight away. And what's like um, the daily rate? Um, I'm going to say anything from thirty dollars above. Yeah. So if, so if it's ever two weeks, that's heaps. Yeah, and then if your dog's not microchipped and your dog's not registered and also not dissexed, like I said before, your dissexing is I think two hundred and fifty, sixty dollars to register and then you're paying a late fee because it wasn't registered. So that's, you know, twenty something dollars on top. Like it just we're talking huge amounts of money for a dog where they just go, oh, you know what? Like I can just get another dog for a hundred yep. bucks. Yeah. And I don't have to worry about it. And there's there's no space. So there's just this on on flow effect of um, you know, there's there's no governing body to oversee the amount of breeding that's happening. Um, there's no governing body to ensure really that dogs are microchipped. Um, and I know that a lot of council rangers, obviously, they respond to roaming dogs or stray dogs and, you know, they it's their job to scan the dogs to make sure they're microchipped, but no one's enforcing that dogs are microchipped. There's no sort of way to ensure that these things are being done um, to make sure people are, are following the rules. Yeah, true. And this is why we're in the position that we're in. And do you think your like personal opinion, the next 10 to 20 years, dog ownership stay the same, become more popular or decrease? Oh, it's a really hard I've never thought about this before. Either, it's so. a really that's a really hard question to answer. Um it really depends on it'd be easy if we looked at stats. I wish we had like a a Jamie of our podcast, we were like, hey, look that up, Google that shit. Um. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. But to be honest, I think it really depends on, you know, people's living circumstances um, at the time, like where they're living. Um, so, for example, like anyone that lives in Department of Public Housing, they are allowed to have an animal. It doesn't matter where you live, whether it's uh-huh. most, most of its units, right? So yeah. you can have a dog. They're allowed. They don't have to ask permission. They are allowed to have an animal. Um, and I think that you know they're not really that's not being regulated either so whether they've got multiple animals in you know a unit that's you know two bedrooms or you know a house that doesn't have proper fencing and the dogs keep escaping and and it's not it's not just these houses either you know it's multiple it's 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 everywhere it's not just low socioeconomic areas it's high socioeconomic areas too yeah, it's pretty it's balanced eh? it's it's across the board eh? across the board it, it is it's, it's everywhere um so I just, there's a, a huge, huge problem, um, you know, in, in the shelter industry and it's it's without that governing body, it's just going to continue to get worse and we're going to see euthanasia rates driven up in shelters. Um, you know, we're going to see a lot of impact negative on, on, on the staff that are working there because it's extremely mentally draining to to be, you know, feeling like Massive you have to burnout. euthanize. Yep. Huge. It's, it is burnout. You know, it's a huge burnout. It's emotional. Like, you know, you – you put and rescue groups are full to the brim too. You can't rely, not that you can't rely on them. They do an amazing job. You know they're working as hard as 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 we do, but you know they're full too. Yeah, and we can't re- rehouse animals as fast as we're getting them in, and this is the biggest issue. And there's no mm. one taking any responsibility or trying to solve the problem as to why this is happening and how do we fix it. Well, I did a quick Google. I was definitely 100% listening to you, as well as what I'm going to read here. Okay. <laughs> This means that there's so there's 30 million pets in Australia, and that was up from the estimate of 28.5 million in 2019. So in a space of two years, it went up. Well, I don't know what the percentage was. So from 16, it went up from 61 percent to 69 percent. 
which is a pretty big increase. Sixty-nine percent of our households have a pet, and does not that, just dogs. Is, does that say anything? Like, is that stats based on animals that are microchipped? Does Probably it actually not. say that? Yeah, this is a good one. Um, no, well, I mean, forty percent. It, I, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of writing here, so it's a lot of reading. The, the, the only thing that I, because I know that obviously a lot of the stats are done through um, when you register, when we yeah, register microchips and all that sort of stuff. So if that's only talking about registered microchipped animals, that's then, huge. Even if it's just registered animals, sixty-nine percent has a pet, and that's including a fish and a rabbit and all that stuff. But you know, they're very low yeah, but numbers. Still, that, that's a responsibility. That's a of responsibility course. in itself. But so, that, so. Yeah, it, do you reckon it's like a fad? It's like, yeah, you know, there was a time where everyone, like, everyone wanted a dog, and then it kind of, it, it's an interesting thing to see that what is it, what is it about dogs? And I'm, you know, I guess we can talk about that forever, but um, it's interesting to see how more technology, not we're becoming more technologically advanced, yet we're accepting more animals in our house. Like, it kind of, you think that we'd be taken over by robots, and we're getting more biological creatures. It's almost like our yearning to be with nature, probably. Yeah, it's it's sort of really hard, and it really it's very intriguing. Like I would love to know the driving force, and I know I've said it, you know, three or four times now. But obviously, this was a flow-on effect from COVID, but it also hasn't stopped from COVID. So we're pretty much, you know, we're mm. almost back to normal in the way that, as a society, that we're functioning, you know, post COVID. Um, but for some reason, yeah, because there's dogs back in the shelters. Yeah. So, but. But that, dogs, do you think that was really weird that there was like no dogs in the shelter? Like I remember I went to the shelter and I'm like, there's dogs here. <laughs> yeah, like, no one had anything, no one had anything better to do. So, you know, no one was allowed to go to work and no one had anything to do. But it's that just, just been, seems too too good to be true. It's like, yeah, I guess so. Like you're at home and stuff. But the the amount yeah. of dogs that are back at the shelter, it was just like, and I knew it was gonna happen. Everyone said it, but like actually thinking about it, it just seems very weird it's not even like it's a like a it's like a hundred percent increase on the dogs that we had during COVID. it's not even like it's a full hundred percent you know even higher than that like it's it's more than double what we had during COVID. um yeah that, that was and it's forecasted. just and it's just it's just been non-stop and it hasn't stopped it hasn't slowed down so what's the why is it like what's happening now? Like what's the driving force behind it? Like you know, we knew COVID was going to be a thing. We knew that we were going to get more animals back in. But what is it right now that's driving the force of all of these animals and coming into all of these shelters where you know some some, some shelters are having a hundred plus dogs yeah. um, that are struggling to cope and mm. it's a flow on effect to their staff that don't want to come to work because they've either been bitten or um, they're too stressed or they can't cope or you know are mentally suffering and, and physical fatigue too. Like it's exhausting. Um, you know, where is it coming from and why? I yeah, it's pretty it's, it's very physically demanding and a lot of I hate to say this, but let's just say as a general, a lot of um, um a lot of people that are very emotively driven are drawn to being with the animals, knowing that with that a heavy emotion, it's hard to see the dogs being pent up, it's hard to see the dogs being put down, it's hard for you to assist for a dog to be euthanized because it's like, oh, and by the way, um, kennel 14 needs to be cleaned. And it's like, I just saw a dog that I love just die and you want me to clean the kennel. It's like, um, yeah, that's just a job. Um, yeah. You know, and for me, not that I wasn't affected by it. I certainly was, but I feel like I could have dealt with that emotion later. Like, you know, just it's all right. Like it is what it is. We just got to clean that kennel though. Um, yeah, it's it's really, 
it is it's really hard and you know I've come and like I've said I've come and gone from this industry um for for a long time and I'm always drawn back to it because it's my passion but um I haven't felt stress like I haven't felt stress working in a kennel environment for ages I just am you know very cool calm collected always see the light at the end of the tunnel but right now um it is really hard and it's hard watching all the staff struggle and it's not just me like it's everyone everyone working in shelters everyone's really feeling the pinch and um it's for someone that you know like i don't respond to that sort of stress very often the fact that i'm feeling it i know how the emotional staff members are feeling and it it is so hard for them and it's hard for me too but it's hard for everyone and it's just really you know starting to bear down on, on the people that are caring for these animals Totally. All right. I've got one, two, and three. I'm going to write, we're going to talk about three things moving forward. What could we actually do? Because we could talk about all the problems and we can do all the stuff. But for the person listening, what could we do that could make even a bit of a difference? I can add to the three. What could be the first one? The first one, um, anyone that's that's listening or knows anyone that's looking for a dog, my first bit, that first first and foremost, please adopt and don't shop, and that is Gumtree. Unless you're looking for a specific breed for a specific thing, I completely understand. You know, you want that dog for a particular reason, but if not, and you just want a companion, please adopt and don't shop. There are so many good dogs in animal shelters that are with beautiful personalities that make great family pets that are kid-friendly, that will do everything you ask, so low-maintenance, you just got to find them. You just have to make the inquiry. And that's the Perfect. shelter staff are happy, happy to help. That's what we're there for. Okay. Number two is I'm going to think about discouraging a friend who just wants to have a dog just because, I mean, have a litter of dogs just because it'll be good or mature the dog or it's good for the dog or it'll make a whatever or I just wanted to go through that experience, whatever it is. If it's like a, and I know that seems like noble and as I, as I discussed right at the beginning, like is that noble? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Like I don't really know. I don't think so. Um, so let's discourage the people that have no business breeding dogs to be like, hey, like just keep that for the for the professionals. If you have such an awesome dog that we need to breed more of that dog, then your breeder, if it's like a purebred, will will want you to do that. And again, if you got it from a decent breeder, most of them are like, you can't breed the dog just however you want. It has to come through us and we keep the the bloodlines and everything intact and understanding yeah. where it's going. And, and, the, and that's a very, very complicated topic of discussion, not to mention. But that's what I would probably say. Discourage your friends from having a dog just because I just want to see what – a staffy and a boxer looks like because my friend across the road, I swear, like the best dog ever. And my, you know, and I'm, I'm sorry to use that voice, but it's always that voice. Um, that says about like this, this is, this is going to be the best dog. I was like, you don't even know anything about dogs, bro. Um, it's killing me. So, um, all right. And number three. Number three, I think, um, as a whole, shelters and, and not just shelters, like anyone in the industry, um, that feels like that that you know obviously everyone in the industry can see that the animals and the dogs are suffering and there's an influx in animals i think there needs to be some sort of whether it's like held at a cups meeting or some sort of meeting where everyone can engage and get together and all sit down and put forward something to the government about how we can make some positive changes or even just some more community engagement about responsible mm-hmm. pet ownership and what we what we should be doing um as a community to you know to just get this under control because it is out of control and that's the way that it is and there needs to be some huge changes made and that's not going to yep. happen without anyone making some noise or as a dog training community um, sitting down together and, you know, putting it forward to the government to make some changes because it it's just out of control. So 
that yes. would be the, the biggest the biggest and best thing which you know at this point sort of would almost seem un- unattain- unattainable but that would be the biggest thing yes of course to get that process moving like you know it, it, it's very time consuming and there's a lot that goes behind it but really that would be the, the biggest driving force as a dog training community and and not just dog trainers but everyone in the animal industry to make it make a stand and you know Put, put the opinion forward and say, hey, we need some help because we're drowning, because we are. Yeah. Um, why do you love dogs? They're just – I love dogs because they give you all of their love and they ask nothing in return. Nice. That's why I love them. They are awesome. just – they're out of this world and they read – and it took me a really long time to, you know, understand it, but they read everything about you without you even realising it, you don't even know that it's happening. They feel all your emotions. They pick up on every single little bit of your being and they're always there. So they just love you regardless of anything that's going on and they ask for nothing but love in return. That's why. I love that. Why do you love dogs? Why do I love dogs? Oof. Um, You know, one thing that I could elaborate from what you were just saying there, um, it was funny because I just had an experience with my son. Um, it was like bedtime, no, ah, I'm trying to put pajamas on him. And then as soon as I went and I did that, like he stopped and like stopped like messing around. And I noticed that with Chili the other day, we're doing, I'm like, weave. And he did some weird spin into my knee and like take me out. But like it was not hard enough to, for me to like fall over. And I went, and he looked at me like, oh. And I'm like, oh, that cue is pretty noticeable now. <laughs> like Spades hates it. If I've like seen something rid- ridiculous on the road, I'm like, and I go, sigh, he'd be like, mm, this bloke's going to lose his fit in a moment. And I'm like, all <laughs> right, man. Like, oh, he just looks at me and I'm like, all right, I'll keep calm, relax. So, like, yeah, they've been amazing teachers. I'm all about, like, my, my biggest passion is is that dogs make us better people. And 100%. dogs, if, you, if you're paying attention, you can learn so much from your dog. And usually the opposite of what you see from your dog's behaviour is where you're at and you need to, like, balance out a little. There's like that a bit of like a yin and yang sort of thing happening there where, you know, um, if if you're out out of control, if you're feeling out of control, your dog would show that somehow. And usually yeah, that's a yeah, behaviour you don't like. And that behaviour yeah. triggers you because subconsciously you know it's a behaviour that you do. So, like, there's there's a bit of a... Um, it's a counteraction. Yeah, totally. And th- so, you know, I, I love to teach dogs how to live in our society, but dogs teach us to live in the now. And I think that's one of the... One of the things that I love most about dogs is is yeah, is definitely. definitely that, um, and and I think we were speaking before we we came on air was that the preparation of dog training and understanding behaviour and the fundamentals of psychology and the application of it and you know because dog training isn't a, is about learning a language as well as about developing like a sport for your dog. There's that there's two two sides of it and and it's really prepared me for parenthood in such a cool way, not completely, but in so many ways of, you know, understanding behaviour, seeing when an extinction burst is happening. I'm like, oh, yeah, you're like tantruming and I know this is going to get intense before it stops and I'm not thinking about it. It's not like I think it, oh, yeah, and I start writing it down like a graph. I just, I feel it. I could see it. It's just, it's obvious, you know, and yeah, I think communication, be clear and just there's, there's, um, Dog training really has helped me, you know, be a better dad. And I think that's been awesome too. So that's another reason. Yeah, there's there's definitely so many aspects of it that you bring into your everyday life that you don't even realise that you do. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And especially when it comes to learning skills. Like I'll be doing something 
for example, like, you know, a heavy workout and I'm like, I'll finish on a positive note. I totally want more. I'm a, I'm like dopaminergic for this situation right now. Um, I'm going to chill out here because I know I'm going to hurt myself. I know that I'll go too far or it's all right. I won't be as sore and tomorrow I'll get after it just as harder. So there's like that progression of behavior and understanding. Mm, I think I'm getting a little bit too into this, you know, and just seeing where my driving motivations are. And a lot of the time it's, very much like a dog, but very different at the same time. But if you can find that fundamental, there's something that underlines all of it. And I think that's really cool. Yeah. No, and, we can, that's, and then we can start a whole new topic uh, episode now. <laughs> that's next time. Next time you come on, we'll go deeper onto it. Perfect. Have me but on any time. I'd love to. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. And after all these years to um, speak again, because it's been a long time since we've had a decent conversation. So yeah, thanks for coming on. Sense. And it's been very Anytime. enlightening. And um, I hope everyone enjoyed the episode. And if there's any questions, because there's lots of things that you can be like, you guys have no idea what you're talking about, this and that and whatever. Or yeah, if there please was- shoot, them, shoot them through. Always happy, open for discussion, always. Definitely. Likewise. So if anything, did you want to share any of your dates or anything that comes to me, I'll share with you. Yeah, 100%. Just anything comes through to you. If there's any further questions, just send them through and I'm happy to answer. Perfect. All right. Well, you have a great evening. And until next time, have a good one. You too. Speak soon. Bye. See ya. Thank you for listening to another episode of Life With Your Dog. Please share with your friends if you're enjoying our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook, Life With Your Dog Podcast. My name's Panos and to keep up with my dog training adventures, tips and techniques, you can find me on Instagram at NP underscore dog underscore training, my website, npdogtraining.com, or my YouTube channel, Nutris Pooches. Thanks for listening, guys. My name is Luke. If you'd like to find out more about my dog training services, you can find me at www.kizuna.com.au. I'm also on Instagram at kizuna training. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.